I don't know if you ever uttered these words in frustration, maybe when you were in junior high, but they have been often uttered, and not specifically that time period of life, but it seems like those years oftentimes conjure up the words. And sometimes it's with a door that has been flung shut, maybe with a little more emphasis than than should have been. But we stomp up the stairs and then we fling the door shut after we utter the words with some intensity to a dad or a mom who has given some instruction or direction that's not what we wanted to hear. And then as that door is shutting, we say, you just don't understand. We fling the door shut and, and we go have our own little party of self-pity. Those words have been often uttered, you just don't understand. But if there's ever a place where they should have never been uttered, it is before a holy God. The Bible reminds us in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 15, for we have not an high priest who cannot be, and notice these words, touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Those words touched with the feeling, it comes from the Greek word sympatheo. It's the the place where we get our word sympathy from. We do not have a high priest in heaven who cannot sympathize with the, the feeling of our infirmity. He was tempted in all points like as we are. That Greek word, tempted in all points like as we are, it means to reveal the nature of a thing. He was tried not to see, is he going to stand or fall? But it actually reveals the nature of a thing. And now as Christ is tempted, which we're about to look at in Luke chapter number four, we see the nature of a thing revealed. And when you and I face similar advancements by the enemy, temptation that seemed to at times rock us to the core, we cannot say to God, God, you do not understand. We have a God who has been tempted in all points like as we are. A God who sympathizes with the feeling of our infirmity. And yet he's gone through all of that as our example, and yet without sin. The title of our message today is simply this. What to do in the wilderness. God, if you are directing me to a time that it feels like I am in the middle of a wilderness experience, I feel alone I feel isolated. I feel bombarded with the attack of the enemy. Lord, I'm in this trying, very difficult time. Lord, it's not a place that I would choose. It's not a place I want to stay. But right now, God, I am in a wilderness experience. What do I do? Let me remind all of us, we don't have a savior that doesn't understand. Don't slam the door on him and say, you have no idea what I'm going through. 
if anyone can sympathize with our feeling of infirmity, with the trial of our faith, it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What to do in the wilderness? First today, recognize that you are there by design. Recognize that you are there by design. Your Bibles are open right now to Luke chapter 4. Let's begin in verse number 1. Luke chapter 4, verse number 1. Here the Bible records the following. And Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was, now notice these words, you may want to underline or circle them in your own Bible, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Okay, how many of you have ever been riding with someone before in a vehicle and you're looking around, you know where you're supposed to be going, at least you have an idea of the final destination. But have you ever been in a vehicle before and you ask the person driving, are you sure this is the right way? I mean, I, I have been asked that question on uh, more occasions than I would care to admit. And oftentimes, actually, no, I'm not going the right way. But I think at times we start to question God regarding the way he is directing our path. God, are you sure this is the right way? Uh, Lord, everything about me, all the circumstances, all the surroundings, it seems inconsistent with the final destination. And yet the Bible reminds us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We're often prone to question the direction of God when things in our lives seem to grow difficult. We wonder if our hardship and difficulty are, are one of two signs. Either we're out of the will of God or we start to question, God, are you really good? Either I'm out of the will of God. God, I, I probably am not supposed to be doing this because this is so hard. I, I'm probably supposed to be doing something else. Maybe I should be somewhere else. I, I should have a different job. I should have a different school. I should have a different marriage because, God, this shouldn't be as hard as it is right now. So must be this isn't the will of God because clearly God wouldn't ask me to do something so hard. Or we start to question the goodness of God. If you were really good, why would I be experiencing such hardship, such wilderness experiences? Andrew Murray was the great missionary to South Africa. He was experiencing incredible wilderness times. He knew what it was like to be led by the Spirit into difficult, trying, wilderness settings. Listen to what he wrote in the midst of hardship when we begin to question the will of God and his goodness. Andrew Murray wrote the following. He said, first, he brought me here. It is by his will I am here. I will rest in this. He's acknowledging something that's counterintuitive. It, it doesn't feel right. He's saying, I know in my mind, I know in my heart, God, you led me here. Secondly, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. 
Lord, you have me in the wilderness. You're going to keep me here with the grace necessary to behave as your child. Number three, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends for me to learn. He will make the trial a blessing. God, I know there's coming a day when I will look back on the wilderness experience and I will see your good hand of blessing even in the wilderness. Number four, in his good time, he will bring me out again. How and when, he knows. There are times in a wilderness setting that we can't see the path forward. God, I don't know how you're going to take me in this wilderness experience. Lord, I don't know up from down, north from south, east from west, but there's coming a time in your good time, you will lead me out how you will do this, when you will do this, you know. And then he, he wrapped up this statement, these statements by saying, so let me say, I am here by God's appointment in his keeping, under his training, for his time. The Apostle Peter said it this way. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. And now look at the turn that this thought takes. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory may be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial. Those words, think it not strange, it's often translated with the idea of being hospitable towards. Think it not strange. It's, it's really, in my mind, it's almost a strange interpretation. Think it not strange. Many times, the same Greek word is used to communicate the idea of welcome like you would an old friend. The wilderness? You mean difficulty, trial, temptation, hardship? Welcome it like an old friend. You be hospitable to it. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial. Welcome it into your life because there is something good in the trial in store for you. In James, he said it, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. That word's interesting, fall into. You get the idea that it's almost like parachuting into the center of the enemy camp. You fall into diverse temptations. That means various trials. Like I am surrounded right now by the difficulty. I'm in the midst of the wilderness. He says, listen, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Why? Knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. There's something good in store for you. Listen to the alarming suddenness that's chronicled in the parallel passage regarding the temptation of Jesus found in Mark chapter 1. Listen to how abrupt this is. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse number 11. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. This is right after the baptism of Jesus. 
this voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. You, you see, these things don't, don't come together. They're, 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 they're not a fit. There's, there's something broken in between them. It's like I, I just got a commendation from my boss. And then when I'm leaving the office and, and I have this glow of approval, I find a note on my desk that's saying I'm being demoted. These things don't go together. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately, oftentimes, we start to question the good hand of God. God, is this really of you? What do we do in the wilderness? Recognize you are there by design. Now, it is true, and and it should be noted. Wilderness experiences can be the product of our own making our own disobedience, our own lack of faith, our own wayward thinking can lead us into a wilderness of our own making. But please note this, God not only permits wilderness trials, he plans them. Every wilderness experience is not a product of your own making. Many wilderness experiences are the product of his own making. What do we do? Well, we remember what we've previously read. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now again, it's true, not every wilderness experience is of God. But clearly, God does lead his children into the wilderness. Let's go a little bit further. What do we do when we find ourselves in the wilderness? First of all, recognize you are there by his design. Secondly, rest in who is there with you. Rest in who is there with you. Look again, verse number one, Luke chapter four. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You know, one of the blessings of finding yourself in the wilderness is the recognition of who is there with you. In John chapter 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. Notice what he says regarding his comfort. He's anticipating this. And the Bible says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, even the spirit of truth, excuse me, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Now, again, Jesus is preparing his disciples. He says, listen, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to give you another comforter. The disciples had been comforted in the presence of Jesus. But he said, I'm going to the Father, but I'm going to send you another. Listen, there's been a comforter that has been abiding with you. I believe he's referencing himself, Jesus. He says, but soon that comforter will dwell in you That's the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you know when God drives you into the wilderness, when he has you in a wilderness setting of his own making, what do we do? We rest in who is there with us. 
How many of you have ever had a stranger grab your arm on an airplane when the airplane hits a little turbulent? You ever had that before? You're sitting there and, and now I'm, a, I'm a, a, a quick sleeper on an airplane. So now I don't stay asleep, but before the plane takes off, I usually am asleep. And I sleep for about 10, 15 minutes, and then I'm kind of awake and ready for the ride. I've had, literally had people during some kind of turbulence, you know, I'm just kind of enjoying, you know, the little, the little shaking of the plane. And all of a sudden, someone's just like, you know, and you feel the grip of death on your arm, you know. And these are strangers. I'm like, hello, nice to meet you, you know, and they're clawing at your arm. So, so why does a person do that? Well, it's not because they're, they're thinking that that's going to make the turbulence go away. They grab your arm because they want to know that someone is there with them. And, and even during times of, of, you know, some fear on their part, even a stranger will do. Have you ever thought about the fact that you, you're not with a stranger in the wilderness? The Spirit Jesus, being full of the Spirit, is driven by the same into the wilderness. It matters who is with you during times of trial. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, what a wonderful verse for us to put to memory. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. What is he saying? He says, here's the reason you don't have to be afraid. I am with thee. You know, today we, we, um, we watched children with their dad and their mom come across this platform. And, and as they did, we recognized them and they introduced their children. Now, Today, none of those children could stand on their own. They're all still needing to be carried along. There's coming a day soon when, when they will find their legs, so to speak, and they will, in wobbly, halting fashion, stand. And soon, when they find some fearful thing before them, they will also know whose leg to stand behind. It matters to a child who is with them. And I submit to you, it matters to a child of God to know who it is that is with them in the wilderness. You may be a freshman at Pensacola Christian College. You may be a new employee at Baptist Hospital. You might be here today and you're a new recruit at NAS Pensacola. You may be recently widowed or even recently divorced. You may be in this auditorium with over 5,000 people and feel all alone. You may be watching this service in some isolated place and feel very much alone in a wilderness experience. I submit to you, if you know Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, you are never alone. Rest in who is there with you. What do we do in the wilderness? We first of all recognize I am there by design. The second thing I do is I rest in who is there with me. What do we do next? Number three, we remember Satan's tactics. Remember Satan's tactics. Now, let's review what Satan does through the wilderness experience of Christ. 
Because certainly he has a tactic, he has a plan, he has a strategy, and we're about to see it unfold in this passage of Scripture. What does Satan do? What are his tactics? First, he continually attacks the child of God. What's his tactic? Well, I'm just going to continually bombard you. Satan continually attacks the child of God. Look at verse number 2, Luke chapter 4, verse number 2. Here the Bible records, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Now we have recorded for us in the verses that are to follow three of what we refer to as the temptations of Christ. Okay, now if you've ever been to Israel, there's a place that they will take you and they will show you this very barren landscape. There is a, uh, a little monastery that's actually built into the side of the cliffs. And they will point to this area as the place where Jesus experienced the three temptations of the devil. But let's note something that's very important to note in the passages of Scripture that reveal his temptations. The Bible says that he was tempted 40 days of the devil in the wilderness. And then, and afterward, he had hungered. And then the Bible says there were three additional temptations of Christ. 40 days tempted of the devil... Now he's at his weakest point physically and then the three temptations that we read about in scripture. Do you know what Satan's doing? Day after day after day after day, Satan is bombarding Jesus with temptation. He's he's hitting him from every angle possible. You say, "Well, well, what was the temptation? We don't know. We know of three. I would submit to you that God, who does nothing in some haphazard fashion, God said, listen, you don't need to know about the 40. What you need to know about are the three. I would even submit further, there may be some temptations that other people won't understand that only you and the Savior will. We don't know all about the temptations of Christ. We just know that this is a continual attack by the enemy. 40 days tempted. The Bible says in Luke chapter 4, verse number 13, and when the devil had ended all the temptation, all 40 days plus the three that we know of, he departed from him for a season. There was a little reprieve, but but this is not a a cessation of the attack for good. The, The enemy is not said, I'm waving the white flag. I concede, I give up, I surrender. What is it that we learn about Satan's tactics? They are continual. He constantly walks about as that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. God certainly understood that we didn't need to know all about the other temptations. But what we do know is that Jesus was tempted 40 days and the three temptations. Again, he does depart for a season and then the attack resumes. What are Satan's tactics? Listen, so long as we are in this earthly tabernacle, let's understand Satan may give us a little reprieve, but his attack is continual. What else do we know about his tactics? Well, he confuses God's love. 
He confuses God's love. Look at verse number three, Luke chapter four. And the devil said unto him, this would be a good word to circle, if thou be the son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Now again, this is somewhat subtle, but notice what Satan is insinuating. He's saying, if God really cared for you, then why are you hungry at all? You're gonna have to take matters into your own hands to provide for you. If God was truly good, would you have any lack, any want, any need? After all, isn't it God's desire for us to always have at every moment of our lives, everything our heart desires? We might be asking some questions today like, why am I friendless? Why did my relationship end? Why did my job change? Why was I falsely accused? Why am I struggling financially? Why, and you fill in the blank. We oftentimes have these why questions and connected to the why is God, if you really cared for me, then why am I struggling with and I think one of the temptations that Satan uses is not only the constancy of the attack, but now this subtle, hey, listen, if you're the son of God, take matters into your own hands. Provide for your needs because clearly God is not. And, and what is it that, that is happening in Jesus' presence? A question regarding the love of God. Satan's tactics haven't changed he led Eve to believe that if God really cared for her, he would have allowed her to eat of every tree of the garden. One man wrote the following. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only unsolvable so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. He went on to say, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. Do you know what God is willing to do? Hard things in our lives to demonstrate the fact that he really does love us. The Bible again says in Luke 4, 4, and Jesus answered him saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth, uh, but by every word of God. What Jesus is saying is that circumstances alone are not the indicator of God's love. Late this past Friday night, I returned from Pakistan. And I spent several days, of course, with the churches in Pakistan. If circumstances are the demonstration of God's love, then Pakistan is woefully lacking the love of God. Then, then Pakistan, the place where I visited and put my feet on the ground, that place certainly is bereft of the love of God. Is that what we're to conclude? That the circumstances of the Pakistani believers are sadly lacking the love of God because their circumstances are so desperately woeful. Or can we conclude 
that God's love is far deeper than our circumstances. What are the tactics that Satan uses? Well, he's going to use a lot of things to try to get us to question something. He's going to continually attack us and we're saying, this is too much for me. He's also going to confuse the love of God through circumstantial events of our lives, causing us to question, if God really loved me, would I be facing these circumstances? What else does he do? He attempts to circumvent God's plans. He circumvents. He's trying to go around God's plans. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse number 5. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. It had already been declared that God had granted to his son the kingdoms of the world. And of course, Jesus already knew this. Romans 14, verse number 11, for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. What Satan was offering was actually a good thing, but the way he offered it and the timing of the offer is not of God. Satan was presenting a shortcut, a way of circumventing the will of God. What did Jesus know about what was before him? He knew that future joy and future glory would come only by the way of the cross. Future joy. Who for, the Bible reminds us in the book of Hebrews, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now listen to the next verse. For consider him, think about him, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. What is he telling us? He's saying, listen, Jesus knew there is only one way to this future joy. There's only one way to this true glory, and that is by the way of the cross. Even now, some of you are bearing your cross. We must remember that there is no other way to arrive at your future joy. The very struggle is proof of God's path, not evidence against it. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. What are some of Satan's tactics? What is he using against us? Well, oftentimes he is continually attacking God's child. He confuses God's love. He circumvents God's plans. And what is it that he does? He challenges God's care. Look at verse number 9. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. 
Do you know what Satan's doing now? He is challenging God's care. Hey, 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 Jesus, why don't you put God's care to the test? See if he really cares about you. And you know, if he really cares about you, he'd keep you from being foolish. He'd keep you from doing something that you probably know you shouldn't have done anyways. Go ahead and be a little presumptuous with the grace of God because if he really cared about you, he won't let anything bad happen. Satan's tempting Jesus to prove that God really cares. We might say something like, if God really loved me, he would have kept some bad thing from happening to me. Or if God really loved me, he would have never allowed me to do these things. In fact, sometimes we're almost daring God to stop us from our own sin, saying something like, if God wants to stop me, he can. And Jesus answering said unto him, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You know, lastly, as we wrap this up, what do you do in the wilderness? <laughs> Rejoice that usefulness follows wilderness. Rejoice that usefulness follows wilderness. Luke 4, beginning in verse 13. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now notice this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region roundabout. What do we do? We must submit ourselves to this progression. That is, usefulness follows the wilderness just as power follows the pain. How often you and I are prepared to tell the Lord, when enough is enough, as if we know when we're prepared for usefulness. This is never his pattern. He alone knows when our wilderness is to conclude and our enhanced usefulness is to begin. The Puritan... Thomas Manton perceptibly observed the following. While all things are quiet and comfortable, we live by sense rather than faith. But the, but the worth of the soldier is never known in times of peace. Why is God allowing our trials to reveal those things that we value more than God? to refocus our attention on what really matters, to wean us from wrong dependence, wrong dependence on anyone or on anything, and simply to mature our faith. He's doing so in ways that could be accomplished through no other means, through no other setting. How sad it is when rather than receive the trial from the hand of a loving father, we refuse it and then find that the trial, rather than refining us, is actually consuming us. A trial will either be accepted and by it we are bettered, or it will be refused and by it we will be battered. We must choose wisely. There's a man named Dr. Richard Soom. He wrote the following. Life on earth would not be worth much if every source of irritation were removed. Yet most of us rebel against the very things that irritate us and count as heavy loss what ought to be rich gain. We are told that the oyster is wiser, that when an irritating object, like a bit of sand, gets under the mantle of his shell, he simply covers it with the most precious part of his being. 
and makes of it a pearl. The irritation that was causing is stopped by encrusting it with the pearly formation. A true pearl is therefore simply a victory over the irritation. Every irritation that gets into our lives today is an opportunity for pearl culture. The more irritation the devil flings at us, the more pearls we may have. We need only to welcome them and cover them completely with love, that most precious part of us. And the irritation will be smothered out as the pearl comes into being. What a store of pearls we may have, if we will. God may be flinging into your lives those very things right now that need to be covered in his love. And he is making something of far deeper value than the irritation or the wilderness may seem at first glance. Are you prepared today to be led by the Spirit, even if that means the wilderness? Do you find yourself currently in a wilderness situation? Will you trust him in the wilderness of uncertainty and even doubt to know that you are there by his design and he will bring you out with renewed purpose, with renewed power in his good time?